I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. We've got the same dad. I can't believe you're still reading the script at this point. I have no memory. Everyone knows that. (laughs) Well, anyway, we've got the same dad, but... We didn't meet until... You were 16. I was about 16. 16, yeah. yeah. Um, Which meant we missed out on a lot of music sharing. So this is the podcast where... We somehow solve that great crime. (laughs) So share sharing an album that that your brother should... Brother should... No! Excellent. Welcome, everybody. This is the podcast where two brothers share an album that the other one should know. I'm Dave in Essex in the UK, and you are... I'm Rob in Hong Kong, where I think you were conceived... I was, in fact, conceived, <laughs> yes. But let's gloss quickly over that. Uh, into... Uh, <laughs> I can't use that now, can I? Um, Why not? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> did, did the little light go red? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's such a tease, isn't it? <laughs> um, right, hang on. I was indeed, but more importantly, today we are going to talk about Supertramp, uh, Crime of the Century. Let me introduce them to you. Ah, Supertramp, they're almost like the anti-rock and roll. If punk is the absolute rock and roll, Supertramp are about as far away from punk as you can get, um, musically and conceptually. Um, Far from spending their formative years travelling around in transit vans, trying to, you know, rustle up enough money for a burger and a gig, uh, they were, their first two albums were funded by a Dutch millionaire, a Stanley August Miser Gaius, um, who gave keyboardist Rick Davies. Great uh, name. What, what a great, uh, name. great name. What a great name. Um, he gave keyboardist Rick Davies an awful lot of money to form a band and record two albums. So Rick... Rick so also a great guy, I guess. Uh, what a man to know. What a man to know. Um, where is he now? Will where he... was he when we were growing up? Uh, well, where is he now? It's not too late. So anyway, Rick formed a band, recruited Roger Hodgson on bass originally, but Roger became the co-songwriter, which we'll come on to, and guitarist. Uh, and thus the songwriting partnership was formed... However, the first two albums, they met with some critical success, but no commercial success at all. So this was their third album, very much a reboot. Uh, Rick and Roger, first he recruited uh, a whole new band behind them. So they got John Halliwell on woodwinds, uh, they got Dougie Thompson on bass, and they got Bob Seidenberg on drums. I mentioned those three because basically what you now have is the five big classic lineup of Supertramp for the next 10 years of their massive international success. And... There's some horns as well, right? And there's some... Horns. Did you mention that? Yeah. John Halliwell on woodwind and, and horns and oh, uh, and anything right. you blow into. Yeah, that's what he did. Wow. Um, the second thing they did on this, uh, on this third album was really try. They knew they needed to make a success of this because uh, the lovely Dutch millionaire had pulled his money. But the first two albums didn't work out. So this was... Uh, although they had a recording contract, they weren't being funded anymore. So this one really had to work. They wrote 42 songs and picked the best eight for this album. Also, clearly, in between their second album, Indelibly Stamped, and this album, uh, they'd listened to some prog. They'd clearly picked up the odd Genesis and Pink Floyd album. So... 
This album went on to be a massive commercial success based on mainly on the single Dreamer, which was a double A side with Bloody Well Right. And the reason I picked it is A, because I love it, but B, because I think it straddles my world of prog, which I know you're not into at all, Rob, uh, and, and normal pop rock world. It often fits on people's top 50 prog albums it's it's there but i think the even the most arch prog fans sort of know sort of it's almost like with a with a raised eyebrow it's there but we know is it real prog it's kind of pop prog it's kind of it's the pop album or rock album that prog fans can kind of accept is just about part of their canon but it's also if you like the prog album that people that don't like prog at all can just about accept because it's kind of got classic rock status rather than progness so it's kind of your entry into prog so I'm really intrigued uh, if you like this swirling portrait of different characters who are in one way or other struggling with their identity, who they are in the world, looking at loneliness, looking at separatedness from the world, whether and how to connect with the world. It speaks of being alone and trapped, maybe even crazy. But it ends with that cathartic rush of crime of the century, which basically says if you do connect with the world, you're bound to end up and as corrupt and full of lust, greed and glory. So it's the prog album for people who hate prog, but like classic 70s rock. Uh, and it's the classic rock album that hardcore prog fans can still accept and say, yes, Tick VG, very good work. I have loved it myself since the moment I first heard it when I was about 18. So that's over 30 years. Um, Rob, what did you make of Crime of the Century? Well, first of all, I'm so glad you didn't tell me any of that before I heard it because yeah the word prog would have probably sent me running to the hills (laughs) but as i was listening to it and getting increasingly excited i started to realize that a lot of the things that were exciting were probably what people who like that scary p word stuff probably respond to too so it was a little bit of a awakening for me sure i mean yeah i mean to be honest when you said super tramp i thought 80 synth band <laughs> yeah that's, okay that's, that's how little i've engaged with this this milieu and it's not that i haven't done my homework on you know 70s rock as as, as you know don't know but for the sake of our listeners like i i'm down with all the zeppelin stones who you know the mainstream stuff i've i've done to death but uh this was clearly like a niche blow on those kind of you know classic rock album listicles uh and maybe it's the name put me off it it does sound Super Tramp, Super Camp. What is that? I, I, it, it was. It was something that I, that I. Um. What? 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 Okay. So the big question: What is a Super Tramp? Before we go any further. Well, indeed, what is a Super Tramp? So they were named after. It's a book called The Autobiography of a Super Tramp by a Welsh poet called W. H. Davis. More, more than that, I, no relation, I think, to Rick Davis, but clearly something they liked. And it's just a, a Super Tramp. What a what a what a great. It just it just sounds great. But I do accept it. Kind of does sound a little bit. Um, what's the word? Uh, okay. I, I totally get Supertrap was so not in the kind of rock and roll world. You know, like they were not they were not mm. rock and roll. So like um their their live album, double live album of the late seventies called Paris, you know, it's got them walking on stage with almost suits and ties and, and holding glasses of red wine. You know, these are not people that are going to go back to the hotel room and throw a TV set out the window. They're, these are people that are going to go. You know, they're going to go home and 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 have a you know open a nice bottle of Chateau to something. Thanks, um, thanks to their Dutch billionaire. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly, you know. exactly. They are they are highfalutin. You know, they're not 
Four Chords and the Truth. Uh, they're not rock and roll. Um, everything is very, very, very musical. And, and I, and I'm aware for me, that's partly what I love about this album is that, um, I'm never bored musically for every 10 seconds. They're doing something different. There's a, there's a different tonality. There's a different arrangement coming in. There's a different time signature coming in. And, and I find that constantly entertaining, but I wondered where that kind of, if you like, kind of almost willful kind of, uh, we're going to be clever musically uh, left you in the end. Oh, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I found this album completely overwhelming, but oh. most of the time in a, in a good way. Okay. Most of the time. Wow. I, t- I, I, I do think this is a record where you have to uh, suspend your, you know, act- activate your suspension of disbelief a little bit. Sure. There's moments where it deteriorates into silliness and there's quite a lot of it that just sounds... Yes, silly. It sounds it sounds incredibly earnest and incredibly silly at the same time. I can't I can't yeah. really explain it. I think it's very much a product of its time, and, if, and in, in 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 a way, I I think it's kind of marvelous. If you think this was 1973, think how much rock music had changed in the preceding ten years, five years even. You know, from Beatles' second album to what the White Album to this, uh, or even going back to Elvis in '55. You know. This is what's been done in guitar music, and arguably, you know, things haven't got a lot more musically complicated ever since. Um, I'm intrigued by what you have said, though. So, are you suggesting this was their most, the most proggy moment of essentially a classic rock band, or the most successful moment of a prog band? Uh, it's the other. It's the first one. Um, yeah, no, this is definitely their most prog moment, um, and you won't find prog fans really into their other albums so they the, those 42 songs i was talking about they followed this up with crisis what crisis which they had to do in a hurry because of the success of this album plucked a lot of songs from those from those 42 album 42 songs in, go, went into that uh and that's just a, a collection of 10 fairly shortish songs actually uh they then did even in the quietest moment which has a long song on it called fool's overture at the on the second side takes up almost the second side which you think is quite a proggy thing to do but to be honest it's not that complex and sort of just repeats itself a bit uh that's sorry super tramp fans i know fool's overture is a massive part of their over and you love it but I, i i find it a little bit boring um and then breakfast in america very very good complex but good pop rock so when you look at sort of people who this band are like people tend to compare them to people like ELO you know that kind of pop rock but 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 very musical and got lots of stuff to it um rather than rather than King Crimson you know like ultimate prog stuff um so this is as I think probably uh, musically challenging as they get and that's a really weird thing to say because the sound of this album isn't challenging is it the the production of it is very very almost easy listening mixed with these um kind of layered complex arrangements where the music is darting around a lot well that's that's kind of probably why i responded to it because it's taken the the kind of liberal use of effects as you say but more importantly the the inventive structures the the breaking down the rules the, mm. the the removing the aabs the verse chorus bridge and really just allowing you know a very novel approach to how songs are structured but the musical ideas are not widdly widdly weird scales weird weird odd meters for sake of it like no. no single musical idea they play is exceptionally difficult it's definitely not stupid music it's more that the the way that these have been constructed is out of your normal yeah. Uh, um, so the lang- the, the, they're using the same language as most pop rock. They're, they're just cramming a lot more ideas into a single composition. And that's why 
I think I responded to it pretty well. But there's also moments where it's very easy to to snigger as well. And that's why I think it's a yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a real, real. I've used this expression before, but it is a real highwear act to kind of blend these together. And I, and I think just the way the record sounds, that you can tell that they're using the most modern effects they could lay their hands on, and they're really pushing the envelope. And I, I found it really instructive to imagine that this came out the same year as Dark Side of the Moon, right? Which certainly is a reference point in some ways. Yeah, no, and I, I totally buy what you're saying about. Golly, didn't music progress from 19? 19- 65 to 1975 this album was actually 1974 and if you look at just how many but how many different um you know you it was just the it was it was the year before year after dark side of the moon there you go there you go yeah so uh, production is interesting produced by ken scott who interestingly what's the name of our podcast your brother should know your brother should know who did was the engineer on your mother should know for the beatles yeah he was uh, um an apprentice in abbey road and grew up through the beatles and ended up engineering and producing on some of their tracks uh and then went on to be a sort of fated producer this was quite a seminal thing for him uh, it, it put him on the map a little bit and um you know rather than spending two weeks on the recording of this album they spent something like six months and they and you can hear it you know they really really Mm. thought through uh, you know almost every note sound syllable and and the way it's produced Um, and it's still uh, for me and I know for a lot of people it's still if you're testing a a hi-fi or wanting to know what your new headphones sound like this is one I put on because it's 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 almost like a reference album just in terms of of how it sounds and it is constantly gobsmacking that it's 1974 because the you know we look Daft Punk last week the production was amazing I do find although you can hear it's dated you can hear it is the early 70s the production is an absolute masterclass in 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 clarity and also um feeling and bass and and all of those kind of clever bits shining through as well yeah i mean this talking about the sound of it there was one that jumped out at me and probably the only piece of music i'd heard before and i think at this point of the album it was real turning point um we have to talk about the single dreamer yes i mean i if that had been the first or second track on the album i feel like i may have wanted to you know run screaming very quickly <laughs> luckily it came at a point where i was kind of ready for it um I, I you know i i think it's a wonderful pop song that's very very well performed um and it shines through so well but it, it does kind of stand out as a bit of a sore thumb on this record because there's some other moments that play to the kind of sentimental aspect of music but they're generally the slower bits mm. all the other fast songs are far more They've got a darker hue, shall we say? Yeah, no, I agree, and it's it's. I respect it as a single, but it's my least favourite bit of the album. And do you remember on Disintegration we talked about um, Lullaby being my least favourite because it just stands out as a pop tune rather than the, the the continuity of the rest of the album. For me, Dreamer is the same. You know, you start with School, which um, just is wonderfully complex god i i can listen to school i've listened to school at least you know thousands of times in my life and i'm still amazed at what you said about there's nothing very clever going on here but they've managed to stick lots of you know not very clever things together and every 20 seconds something changes and every 20 seconds it's engaging and for me school is like it just captures the whole yeah. album as a as a, I, a as a start i feel like every time you think you oh they've got to the song this is what the song is going to be about yeah it changes and it 
I don't think at any point or very rarely is it repeat any any section. No, it really um, doesn't. I've got to say, mm. the beginning of that harmonica, yeah. it's the same note, the same delivery as the Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. I always think of it's the, f- it's the first notes you hear on. No, it is. Is it? <laughs> I'm expecting Bruce to go. I saw the standing <laughs> I love on it. her front. I, 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 it's exactly the. I, I think it's. And so- you just hear those notes, and I, I, I presume it's a sheer coincidence. So. You know, Nebraska came way later, so... I would find it amazing if Springsteen would ever list Super Trump as one of his major influences and, and that he was actually harking back to that. So I'd imagine that is just a coincidence, but I, but I like the idea. Um, but but what I was going to say, just to get to Dreamer, I'm not just because you, you have school, very, very complex. You've then got these two quite dark... Um, uh, sorry, then you go into Bloody Well Right, which was the other side of the single, which which we'll come back to. But then you've got these kind of two quite dark songs, which are actually almost the most traditional in terms of their arrangement. You've got Hide in the Shell and Asylum. And if you listen to it for as long as I have, you'll know that But what they both do is that their, their verse sort of first chorus structure, it's more of a verse bridgy build to a chorus they do that twice both of them do that they do that verse bridgy build and then they do it a second time in a slightly different way and then both of them end in a different way that again leaves you wondering oh my god i thought i knew what this song was and then they've, they've taken it some, some somewhere else so that's the first side very lots of complexity there and then dreamer comes on and it is just it's just you know it's you know almost that one kind of phrase dreamer la, 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 dreamer that's it that's the song because it does that kind of uh, a couple of times and then it goes into the quiet bit of dreamer which is just this for a single it's quite weird actually it just sort of spends about a minute and a half building in a in a in a in a different way to uh to the to the chorus again and a, and, a, and, a, and a key change but as a as a pop song even as a pop song it's not going first chorus first chorus bridge first chorus it's sort of going our chorusy bit, our chorusy bit, some weird breaky bit, and then our chorusy bit and a key change in the, in the but it but it's still very pop, right? Yeah, and I've always kind of loved songs that do that, that start with a chorus. It's mm. a device that's of course it's often been used in the history of music, but I don't think it's actually been used often enough given how how great it is. I mean, yeah. I think she loves you is a perfect example, right? Yeah. Like that. Actually, she gives loves a, a bad name by Bon Jovi. Perfect song, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Going yeah, yeah. in, if you if you hit them with a chorus at the beginning, it's a really really powerful device. And considering yeah. how powerful it is, it's it's odd it hasn't been used more often. more often. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, in this case, I mean, I th- I think it's a wonderfully arranged, fun piece of music. But it did kind of stand out to me, and it's almost a shame that it it kind of goes before what I think is probably my favorite song, Rudy. Yeah, I've got a lot of wow. questions about this. Okay, go on. First of all, who the fluff is Rudy? <laughs> yeah, we don't know. He's too, all we know is on a train to nowhere. <laughs> but he's also <laughs> halfway what, down the track. You know, but is he just in a cinema the whole time? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's escaping. Is, is this just yeah. a big movie? Is life yeah. a movie? Is he just trying to? I don't. I. Yeah, I, I, I'm a bit. I'm very confused, but um, the way that song builds and the, and the various progressions it goes through is is bloody fantastic. Um, oh, I'm so glad you liked it. I thought you'd hate it, so that's fantastic. Wow, I love the uh, the 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 kind of Englishness of that song, and the and the the, the there's a quote that they take a sample a sample in 1974 from a, a station announcement that that, that name checks Bristol Temple yes. Lee Station. That's just fantastic. Which is so delightfully. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you, I was listening to that walking through Central Station in Hong Kong, and I yeah. almost felt a you know a a pang of. Yeah. A pang of homesickness, homesickness. Yeah, which is yeah, the closest, yeah. I, the closest I get to remorse yeah, right now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, I think Rudy is 
one of the very strong songs on this album. And it goes into, and I wondered what you thought of if everyone was listening, which again, and I mentioned that again, because it's, it's again, like Dreamer, a little bit different to the rest of the album. Uh, for me, this was probably, you know how I said we had to walk this high wire act and this suspension of disbelief. There were mm. probably two moments on this record where I couldn't quite walk the, walk. the whole way okay. to go yeah. with them. And this was definitely one of them. I, I it was kind of comically British, uh, all about you know this this kind of caricature of the players. And I've got to say, it, this was to me uh, at various times different references came up. Um, I'm kind of annoyed that this record came after Dark the Side of the Moon because the core progression, I, what I guess is the chorus, does sound very similar to the song that goes "See You on the Dark Side of the Moon." It sounds like the most overt. It almost sounds like a ripoff. If they were contemporaries, I'd let them go. But it, it, for this to come out a year later sounds, you know, a little bit too close for comfort for me. One thing I did notice: um, the quirky little flute solo at the end. Mm-hmm. Is that does that not remind you? I think it's a Nick Drake song. Ah, uh, you know, if uh, it, it never has done. Um, no, it's a Joni Mitchell song. It's a Joni Mitchell song. I think okay. Tim Whistle or something off one of her, off something off Clouds, perhaps one of the early songs, and it just kind of ends, and then it has like a one of her very early. It might be, it might be Ladies of the Canyon or even the first album. But yeah, that seems like a very obvious reference to a, a Joni Mitchell. So I have to say, while while Dreamer I think doesn't fit, and therefore it's probably oddly my. You know, on a, a low point would be the wrong word because I still I still love it. Um, if everyone was listening, I get doesn't quite fit the style of the rest of the album. And, and and actually, when you go on the kind of super tramp fan sites, most people say that this is their uh, the least strong track on the album. And I, I just must I must just interrupt yeah. to say I'm very much looking forward to spending some time on those super tramp. <laughs> fan page well they sound like it. a riot dave they well, are now we riot. you're spending your middle age that's 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 where i spend my saturday nights yeah yeah well you know i mean obviously you know not not just the super Trap ones but the uh the genesis ones and the jethro tull ones as well if i really want to live wild um it's actually my one of my favorite songs so you've just ruined it for me by thinking that it, there might be bits ripped off from uh from uh pink floyd and Joni mitchell which i'll have to check out i love it for a number of reasons i love it because um i think it does give her all the other songs all the other the rest of the album is really clever um and musically very engaging i think at 19 i the the, the, the lyrics no, 19 and lyrically and conceptually, it really spoke to me as well, all that kind of separatedness. But actually, with in the cold light of day, perhaps because the production is so crisp and clear, it, it's not the most it's 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 not the most emotionally engaging experience for me, this album anymore. I, I appreciate it musically more than more than lyrically. But I actually find if everyone was listening, to be the kind of sentimental, emotional heart of the album. I think without it, it would be a little bit of a colder uh, experience all, all round. And I I mean it's it's inspired by Mid- Midsummer Night Dream, so you're right to make the sort of Shakespearean player um re- reference. And I guess what he's talking about is, you know, it's around people who never quite feel that they're being entirely themselves out there in the world. They're always putting on some kind of performance uh, and that being something they have to dress up for. You know, how, how do you plead an actor indeed? Go rely, relearn your lines. I find it quite heartbreaking in a way that, that that character is having to do that all the time and isn't succeeding. So I and so I find it a really, really emotionally engaging piece in, in what can be a, a not-so-emotionally-engaging album and a really, really good um 
intro to the kind of what I see as the absolute majesty of the of the title closing track crime of the century so I mean you know to go from Rudy to to this um if everyone was listening to crime of the century as a threesome what a you know what an incredible journey musically and and lyrically to go on yeah yeah I I I mean so uh, maybe there's more to those lyrics than than I mm. realized and I did definitely sense uh you know this this perpetual feel of outsiderness I think because it starts sure. with school and then schools are talked about in bloody right um, yeah I, I I was very eager to imagine it's a concept album which I, I you know yeah. the internet disproved which is which was quite disappointing and I feel like I might have had a bit more sympathy for these moments if I felt that they were kind of being massaged into a larger narrative because we all know for example Tommy is full of mm. less than perfect mind-blowing musical moments because they serve the, the narrative and i we sure. can kind of get on board with that i think the other moment where i really felt that was uh asylum okay so yeah which to me probably has the opposite well the same problem but for you the opposite it, this felt very on the nose right uh it right. felt like uh i i didn't i didn't see any way to take this but but literally um mm-hmm. it, again it was one of the i think it was one too many st- Songs that start with like a kind of twinkly piano intro. Yeah. And they've actually, they really, you might find this surprising, but they really, really remind me of the E Street brand. And I feel okay. like uh, <laughs> the pianist composer must have a similar background. I presume he's classically trained, but not much of a, you know, not, not, not a lot of groove, not a lot of jazz, not a lot of slurring, not a lot of rhythmic freeness. He's, he's very technically precise and he's playing exactly the same kind of semi improvised, but basically big kind of arpeggio noodling mm-hmm. that Roy Bittan would, would play at the beginning of, you know, the windy, long, sentimental Springsteen songs. And to me, this song is a bit of a Springsteen song. Uh, and it will like good Springsteen songs, you have to suspend your disbelief again. You know, if you're going to uh-huh. buy into the river or stolen car or some of those yeah. longer, you know, more Night of the Soul records, you have to kind of, especially, you know, growing up in rural Britain, you can't necessarily buy into all that imagery. Or, sure. But this one, you know, it the lyrics were just kind of so clear. I mean, I, I found the idea of 15p for a smoke pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> but everything else, it, it was kind of like, it was, it felt a little bit, yeah, like a knowingly earnest attempt at like pop opera. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, Spring, Springsteen meets West Side Story. Nice. Nice. I'll take that. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it is lyrically very direct. It has exactly the same lyrical theme as, um, Elton John's Madman Across the Water, which is perhaps a little bit more famous, but it's essentially, uh, you know, someone that's in an asylum who does or do they not know they're mad and are they mad or not and they're denying they're yeah. mad which, and, which and, maybe and and, and and mad and i should just say mad is an awful word these days you know <laughs> uh but, it, yeah. but but at that time but it but is is denying their denying their mental health state yeah maybe and maybe that hasn't dated well in the way it's addressed mm. there's one more song that we haven't talked about actually so like I said, I think Rudy is by far, well, not by far. I think Rudy, if I, if pushed, I think I'd take Rudy as my favorite song, which is kind of surprising because it's actually the longest. Uh, and normally that's the ones I shy away from. And obviously the first two, they just work as a double whammy for me. I think the way they, they both, the first, you know, um, school and bloody well right. The way school, the, the way the school evolves for its different, like different stages mm-hmm. that we discuss, it's, 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 it's fantastic. But I think for me, the intro of bloody well right is, particularly impressive because again it starts with that kind of slow piano and then you've got this kind of slow funk coming in and then the horns and there's a bit where it's almost got like a sharp guitar yeah. and then so much has happened before the song even starts and then you get the power chords you're like whoa yeah. it's like wow. this is like yeah. Alice Cooper or, so- or something yeah. you know and, and then you've got these dual guitar harmonies and it's like you know and all this is before the song has really begun yeah 
And then the whole bloody riot. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's almost <laughs> like a, a British, you know, British border little, well, you know, fairy grounds, whatever. So the whole thing's slightly ridiculous, but I think I, I've gone with the bloody riot yeah, yeah. because I've sat through the minute or minute and a half of musical specialness. I'm saying all this uh, because it relates to what may be my favourite song of the album, but in some on some days, but on others is my least favourite, Hide in Your Shell. Mm. Uh, I think it all rests on that completely irresistible chorus. I find just the melody so compelling. It, it just instantly grabs you in a way that even Dreamer doesn't. I think it's a fantastic chorus. But as you say, it's a lot more simple. Um, mm. And it's kind of got this kind of twee, twinkle, twinkleness to it, you know, going on in the verses. And actually, this is the one that reminded me of Elton John a little bit. I, 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 it, it grabs me so powerfully. It's just the strength of a really, 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 really good piece of songwriting. So that's kind of second stroke, seventh favorite song on the album, depending on what day of the week it is. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is fascinating when you start digging into their, um, their different backgrounds and, and writing styles. And it's probably worth spending a bit of time on, on, on that. So you've got Rick Davis, um, who is apparently from a working class background, but uh, classically trained. So very, very good, you know, pianist, but but does have a kind of um, a, a blues, um, you know, he's 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 done blues bands and, and goes on to do some more simple blues stuff as well. Um, and but then you've got um, Roger Hodgson, who went to private school, is is basically um, uh posh and into pop and he's the one in the band that's that's written dreamer and later on writes the really big hits like breakfast in america and um and and the logical song so in the albums before this they apparently collaborated very heavily they wrote together and they were as i say commercially sort of successful i'm sorry critically sort of successful but commercially not apparently on the time this album their relationship had already started to get not strained they never said it was a strained one but they just never really got on other than musically so they weren't mates you know they they just they just kind of did this together um so by this album they're clearly writing although all the songs are always Lennon and McCartney you know it always says David Davis and Hodgson um it's clear who wrote which one you can tell by who who sings on which one so oh so um, I would love you to break this album down for me uh, okay so you've got Rick Davies, he wrote bloody well right, Asylum and Rudy. Yeah. Oh, how Which, odd! So yeah, two well, of my favourites well, and one one of my least favourites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it is amazing. So he's a lyrically do... on. He's a lyrically on the nose guy, basically. He's yeah, the yeah, heart but, and the sleeve. Uh, yeah, but he is. But it is also weird because they do have these different musical styles. But sometimes you're like, oh golly, is that a Hodgson or a Davis song? But yeah, but all of those three do have those piano intros. I think all three have that, those those um, uh, bloody well right and Asylum certainly do. Rudy's no more goes straight into it, but that's where he's, you know, displaying his piano, piano his chops. Roy Bittan yeah, chops. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Hodgson wrote Hide in Your Shell, which is the more surprise to me if he's the poppy guy, because that feels like it's more like a asylum, but he wrote Dreamer and if everyone was listening. Uh, okay, so the, okay. The, the, the two more, um, the more poppy ones. But, 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 they, they collaborated properly, apparently, on school, on the, on the opening and closing track, on school and on crime of the century. Uh, and that's, that's symbolic. Yeah. And for many people, those two are the strongest musically songs. They're certainly the ones I go back to and think are absolutely brilliant musically. Um, and they, they opened and closed their gigs for many years to come. Uh, you know, those two absolute collaborations. And you could say, because certainly on later albums, they really, really not only wrote separately, but arranged separately as well. And it just became kind of almost two people's solo projects on the same album. Um, so there is an argument that. 
Yeah, they white albumed it. So there is an argument to say that the last time they properly collaborated on two songs was the first and last, you know, School and um, Crime of the Century. And they are very, very strong songs. If only they'd done that more, but they didn't. That's just personalities and, and, and rock and roll history for you. But that's how the writing ties down. And, and you can see it. You can see um, Davis's more complex classical approach to songs like Asylum and Rudy. And you can see Roger Hodgson's more kind of pop not simplistic approach because he's a very he's a very musical guy but 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 more frontally melodic approach in things like dreamer and everyone was listening but they they certainly have a crossover of 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 kind of musicality in them again i'm so glad i didn't know that before listening Mm. the song we haven't really talked about is the very last one crime of the century which i just think is incredible it kind of rounds off the whole album uh musically but also lyrically as i said at the beginning you know all of that introspection and should i be part of the world and well if you are it's only going to go badly you're going to end up as a man of lust greed and glory i love the way it just kind of slowly the first half just kind of slowly um builds and then you've got um some hodgson guitar and then the the piano when i first heard it i thought the piano was going to do more and i was waiting for that ding 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 to change it changes a little bit but what you realize is what's going on top of that the orchestral work and the saxophone coming in which just Bills and bills and bills and bills and bills and bills and bills to that massive climactic note, which then quickly fades, and then you hear the harmonica that um, that brings you right back to the beginning of the album again. I honestly think it's this is it's it's probably I've top ten. I'd have to struggle, but top twenty certainly songs of all time for me. It's certainly Desert Island, Island Disc um, candidacy. I, I can listen to it again and again and again. I'm not even going to engage with that level of absurd fandom, but I am <laughs> slight. No, no, I'm I'm genuinely baffled that you're saying this is one of the two they wrote together um mm-hmm. because for me the first song school probably is a musical high watermark of the album i think there is the most going on uh, and i think that you know that really sets out it grabbed me instantly and made me suspend my disbelief as i've said for lots of the things that were to come and lots of the kind of you know uh lots of the musical decisions about maybe more than decisions of taste that i might have otherwise found dubious sure um Maybe I haven't engaged with this song as much as I'd like to, but to be honest, uh, yeah, it sounds a little bit like a bit of a melodramatic piano dirge at the outset that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, I mean, honestly, it just sounded like a Monty Python sketch of British rage. It was just so overblown. And, <laughs> I mean, I got the something very profound was coming on. I haven't analyzed the lyrics to the extent you have, but uh, it yeah. just all sounded a little bit silly. And as you say, and then nothing really happens. I, I really like the trippy outro. I love the build and the saccato and the power. and the, But it's just classic rock and roll. I mean, that's any band can do this, and many bands have done that. Yeah, more instruments, layers come in, textures. That mm-hmm. is exactly why what puts me off bands like Pink Floyd that aren't that musically interesting, but just rely on effects and production and arrangements to bring out, to play at your, you know, to play at your heartstrings that aren't, that don't actually really mentally appeal to musicians that much, but appeal more to the general populace who just, who can sense something's changing. And so for me, this felt like a little bit of an underwhelming end. I, I, I don't hate it, but mm-hmm. to learn that it was one of the two collabs and it's what they closed their concerts with for many years just seems kind of baffling to me because, yeah, next to Rudy, next to Rudy, next to school, next to Blo- Bloody Right, it's just, it just feels a little bit underwhelming. I, I, I probably, yeah, no, fair enough. And, you know, I, I, thinking back, I might well have thought the same 30 years ago. Um, because it, it doesn't have, you're right, actually thinking about it, it doesn't have the same, uh, 
musical complexity. Um, I th- I think I think we can allow it them in an album that has so much you know musical stuff going on we can allow them a bit of tropey emotion at the end and it and it and it and it, and it really works for me uh, as i say but that is a, yeah I, it's a fa- it's a fair cop i do i do i do get that it is um it's 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 a more it's a it's a set of more obvious musical choices so i have to say i am delighted that um that you found a lot to appreciate on on this album and surprised uh and and really pleased i i i guess a question is and a question for me to ponder is with any album where's the best place to listen to this Ooh, uh i can only imagine myself curled against a train window preferably like a s- old <laughs> kind of 70s train maybe going through like the alps or somewhere or switzerland or somewhere high up it's icy it's cold i'm in an empty carriage it's kind of round dusk and i've got you know it's a, it's a bit wes anderson to be honest um, i'm you know I'm, I'm wearing big old school canical headphones and i'm just immersed in the music that's that's what i hear it's icy but it's beautiful it's 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 yeah it's pain and beauty at the same time and it's definitely complex it's all and nostalgic all the things these this album's saying to me wow yeah no i can get behind that i love that so let me ask you when did you encounter this album and what role has it played in your life okay so the the way i can only imagine myself listening to this and where it takes me back to is i first heard it in a i was in a tiny bedsit so i must have been actually 19 uh on a record player proper record player it was proper vinyl lp um we still have it i don't still have it no sorry um because obviously i did what everybody else did and sell their vinyl and get cds and now i stream and now i might buy vinyl again and so it goes around um but you'll be pleased to know i was listening to it on a massive pair of chunky 70s headphones uh yay but i wasn't unfortunately on a train in the alps uh i was um stacking shelves in test for tesco's in in the daytime and living in this seedy bedsit in uh in felixstowe in suffolk and you know as i say at the time lyrically this one meant a lot to me because um it was all about you know where are you what's your place in the world alienation am i going a bit mad uh who am i who are the props in my play as the as the song says um and who should i be um so it so it so it played a, a big role kind of emotionally for me at the age of 19 um musically it's a it's 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 sort of traveled with me because it's a kind of yardstick for me of 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 other bands you know and when and when bands try to be kind of clever i sort of go back to this album and go yeah you're not you're not quite pulled off school have you <laughs> good, good luck with that um and uh oh, where would i ideally listen to it now I think I might join you on your train in the Alps. That sounds like that sounds like an, an ideal place. It, I tell you what, it is. There's something about there's something traveling with this album. I don't know whether it's just mm. the Rudy and the train thing, but there's something about being on the move that, well, the sense that of suits perpetual this motion album. because mm. there's a real sense of perpetual motion because the music keeps changing, and it's not like yeah. it keep, necessarily gets faster or, but it, it it it's got that methodical sense of progress to it, which perhaps sure. is why why it suggests train travel to me, not not air travel or anything else so honestly dave i i didn't expect this album to have the effect on me it's had um i'm really grateful to have it in my life now if i wanted to hear more where should i or our listeners go yeah and that's 
difficult. I spent probably spent quite a lot of time searching for another Super Tramp uh, Crime of the Century experience. It does feel quite unique for them because it's their most proggy complex moment. There's there's good Super Tramp to get into. You know, I, I personally would recommend the album that followed this up. As I say, Crisis What Crisis. Um, although actually that one gets less good reviews. Um, but I think there's a lot of really strong songs on that and I've always, always enjoyed it. The big behemoth Breakfast in America is worth a listen. Get, get, give it a go. There's some, it, it, uh, you know, put, take, take your sort of complex prog ears off and put some pop rock uh, or, or, on, ears on, and it, and it, it is worth a listen. And the other thing that's really worth a listen is, is the, um, is the live album because, well, you know, it's always good to hear songs live and, and they, and they do, do them pretty well. So Paris, the live double album that they released, uh, seven of the eight songs are on, are on, are on, are on that album. So you can see, and that was, what got, that was, what, what got left off? Um, if everyone was listening, oh, the, the, yeah, it's, I can see why they've done that. It's a quieter, not quite so in your face thing for a live album. But they they had just, you know, that tour was the Breakfast in America tour. They had just become absolute global superstars, and Breakfast in America was a huge album. And yet on the tour, they still played, you know, ninety five percent of this of this album, which which yeah, effectively all of it, which shows you. Now be about ninety two percent, wouldn't it? If, uh, maybe eighty seven, eighty seven, eighty seven. Eighty-seven point five, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am actually going to also, and this is a more nerdy one. One. So what happened is they they split up after um, famous last words, which was the album after Breakfast in America. Roger Hodgson finally said, "You know what? I'm just going to go in my own musical direction, uh, and 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 I want to do my my own stuff." And classically, he did that Roger Waters Pink Floyd thing. You know, when Roger Waters left Pink Floyd, he was like, "Well, I thought everyone would realise I was Pink Floyd. I thought everyone would realise that I wrote the songs, and they'd come and see my gigs, and no one would go and see Pink Floyd." And of course, what happened, you know, five years later was he was playing tiny gigs and everyone was watching Pink Floyd in Wembley Stadium play Roger Waters songs because they had the name. And the same thing happened to Supertramp. Supertramp carried on. To be fair, it's not quite the same because Rick Davis carried, a, you know, had a lot of classic songs in his back catalogue. When the first tour after um, Roger Hodgson left, they didn't play the, the the Roger Hodgson songs. So the really big pop songs, they were the ones that the kind of casual fan would have gone for. They didn't play and there was kind of some uproar around that. So eventually they started playing it again. But the first album they did after um, Roger Hodgson left, called Brother Where You Bound, which was apparently part of the reason Roger Hodgson left because he just didn't like the direction of it, is actually it's 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 it plays a lot more on Rick Davis's, if you like, classical kind of more proggy. Um, it's about the Cold War, and and actually that's a really good album as well. So those are the Super Tramp recommendations. In terms of bands that sound like them, I don't know. I think they're pretty unique. You know, I think you could make it if you if you like this sort of stuff. Well, uh, if it's entry level to prog, I can name you a whole load of prog. Go and listen to Gentle Giant. That's a really lovely English prog band that shares some of that this kind of. Um, Englishness, if if you like, in some of their musical approaches, um, but more, but I guess the bands that people say more that are more like them are, are actually Steely Dan, <laughs> kind of you know well produced, clever music stuff, uh, and the Alan Parsons Project, kind of complex pop, if you like those kind of things. But no, nobody who I'd really go, you know, uh, oh yeah. Um, I, I, believe me, I've got all of Supertramp's albums and, and I've spent a, a, a lifetime trying to find, you know, the, the bits of them that are, that are like this. But I think this is their masterpiece for a reason. It's, it's their, it's their one-off masterpiece that's the best thing they ever did. So I've managed to pitch an album that my brother should know. One out of two after the, after the, uh, the, the lukewarm reception that Disintegration got. Um, what You mean, am... you mean the, the, the blazing vitriol in the B-roll? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm dressing it up. Um, 
what am I going to be experienced after giving you 70s prog-ish rock? What am I going to be uh, receiving next time? Well, in about a week, I'm going to be seeing in concert one of the, well, I think coolest and... Well, it's so much pressure <laughs> when it's like a spot. <laughs> That's insightful. Musical journalist I look to you for, Rob. The coolest. They're the coolest, man. Hey, they're yeah, like yeah, that that's cool. kind of the point. Like, that's so cool. Uh, one of the most... All right. <clears throat> well, in about a week, I'm going to be seeing one of the most enduring guitar bands of the millennium, whose debut album has actually widely been described by many people as the most influential guitar album of the millennium. It's frankly a it's the crime of this millennium that you don't know it. Is this it by the strokes? <laughs> Very good. Is this it by the strokes? We are going to solve the crime of this century uh, by, uh, by, uh, by by rectifying the fact that I've never listened to it in my life. So I very much look forward to that. I don't, well, my preconceptions are it's going to be very different to Supertramp, but I'm looking forward to it very much. Wonderful. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next time. <laughs>